to start with our big idea this morning. God is at work restoring his original intention for creation through his gift of Jesus Christ. And we, the church, are the new society that expresses what God intends. God is at work restoring what he intended for creation for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And now, by the riches of his grace and his sovereign decision, he is actually using his church, this brand new society that is filled with the Holy Spirit, to express and live out his intentions, to live and to speak the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot. (laughs) That is a big place to begin as we jump into this passage of Scripture. But I think these ideas are important because they help us make sense of what the Apostle Paul is doing as he opens up the book of Ephesians. Now remember, part of what we're wrestling with as we go through this first section, this introduction in the book of Ephesians is verse 3 through 14 is one long, complicated sentence. And the Apostle Paul, as you read this through, he, he stacks idea on top of idea on top of idea, and we almost get just a little bit overwhelmed. And so it's important for us, I think, to sort of get a sense of the big picture, to slow down and understand what it is that Paul is dealing with as he speaks to the Ephesians, as he speaks to us. But God is making sense of the world. He's putting things back together through Jesus Christ, and even by His grace using His church. Now, the Ephesians that Paul first spent time with, Paul and his missionary team, and the church had been growing there by the time Paul gets there, that Ephesian world was full of competing gods and idols. It was full of pagan religions. It was full of temples to different gods and goddesses. The primary temple in the city of Ephesus, you can go back and read it in Acts Acts chapters 19 and 20, but the primary temple that was the focus of a lot of the worship in Ephesus, that was the focus of a lot of their lives in Ephesus, was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. But they used that kind of worship to make sense of their lives, to to fix things that were going wrong, to understand how family and morality worked. And so their world was full of these kinds of idols and gods and goddesses. On top of that, you've got the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would try to unify every nation it conquered through the worship of one individual, the worship of Caesar. They believed Caesar to be a certain kind of divine being here on earth. So if Rome came through and they conquered your culture, they would allow you to continue your form of worship as long as you could say Caesar is Lord. So this is the way in which Rome would unify things. This is how Rome would bring peace. This is how Rome would bring their version of this is how the world is ordered and put together. So these original Christians in Ephesus and the surrounding cities, this is the kind of world that they lived in. But then Paul and the gospel show up, and they begin to tell a completely different story about reality, about who is God and what he is like and what life is like as a result. Paul begins to say things like, there is only one God who created all things. This God is above and beyond creation itself. And this God is actually involved in the lives of his people as well. 
The power of this God is not dependent on how many people worship him. The power of this God is not dependent on how large the empire is, but his power is his own, and it's infinite from beginning to end. He begins to tell this different story of who God is, and that leads to a different kind of life for them and for us. Part of this story that Paul tells, God created all things. You and I rebel and we break the things that God created and that God intended. So God now is at work bringing everything back together in himself. This God of Paul's, this God of the gospel, is a God of both complete power and complete love. This is the God who desires to restore all things. And so he extends himself and his power in order to actually accomplish the restoration of all things. And he's going to do it in Jesus Christ and through his people. We as the church actually get a chance to take part in this, to express God's intention, to speak the gospel to the rest of the world. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, what is this powerful God up to. As we've talked about, as we've jumped into this book a little bit, what is this gift-giving God up to? Here's some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. This God purchases our freedom and forgives our sins. That should be enough to send us home full of the greatness of God. He purchases our freedom and He forgives our sins. Do we know, do we understand that we are slaves to our sin until God frees us. God frees us from our sins. God then gives us an inheritance in His kingdom through His Son, Jesus Christ. He adopts us as His sons and daughters, and He opens up His home to us. His kingdom now is accessible to all of His children, and He guarantees that relationship by sealing us Paul says, with the Holy Spirit. He guarantees that relationship. So God gives us an inheritance in his family. And then we're going to see this this morning. I love this thought in Ephesians chapter 1. God is uniting all things in Jesus Christ. Now the language there is stark. The language there is powerful. When Paul says all things, he means all things are coming together united in Jesus Christ, including our very lives. So let's begin reading Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 7, and we're going to read through the end of this introduction through verse 14. So here we go. Buckle up. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him... We have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we read that, if you're not going a little bit, wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> you were missing part of it. There's so much going on, but man, guys, this is beautiful, powerful, and this is foundational stuff to the Christian faith. So we want to make sure we hear what Paul is saying how it changes the culture that we live in, how it changes our sinful nature, how it changes our perception of reality as he talks about who God is and what happens as a result of that. So he begins here in verse 7 by saying, In him we have redemption through his blood, and we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the will and the purpose of of God. We have redemption and we have forgiveness. We talked about this pattern last week as we went through the first sort of section of this introduction. There's this kind of pattern that sits in here. Paul speaks of the gifts that God gives and their intended outcomes. Here's what God gives us and here's what God is doing because of these gifts. Here's what's supposed to happen. And that pattern of gift and outcome continues in this passage of Scripture. So here are these two thoughts that begin here in verse 7. I want to make sure we understand, make sure we hear and soak in these realities for a little while. First, God redeemed us by His blood. God redeemed us by His blood. This is one of these truths that's at the very core of the Christian message. Right at the very core of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean when Paul says God redeems us? To be redeemed is to be bought back. A price is paid to return something to its original and rightful owner. It is somehow not in that owner's possession. Someone else or something else has it. A price needs to be paid by the owner to receive it back. God redeems us. And the price that he pays, he redeems us by what's the next two words? His blood. This is the price that God pays to pull us back into himself. Another translation takes that word redemption. And here's here's what's going on. This is the concept here in this passage when it says God redeems us. God purchases our freedom, another translation says. So he buys our freedom. Well, what is it God's buying? God is buying our freedom. Well, our freedom from what? Our freedom from the oppression of our slavery to sin. You see, guys, now because of God's act of redemption, you and I are free to obey God. We are now free to live in the presence of God. We are now free to live according to the voice and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we receive redemption, Paul says in other places, we are actually slaves to our sin. We are not free to live God's life. But he purchases our freedom 
and now we are free to live the life that God desires. This is the language of something that's gone wrong, that's being put right again. Remember, God is restoring his intention through Jesus Christ expressed in his church. Someone else or the wrong person or the wrong thing owns his children. He pays the price and he buys them back, brings them back to himself. Now, the world that Paul lived in, the world the Ephesians lived in, was a world of religious sacrifices. They were accustomed to this notion that something has gone so wrong between me and God that the only price that could possibly pay that is the price of shed blood. There's no monetary value that you can place on that to to cover it, to take care of it. It has to be shed blood. And so God, by His blood, redeems us. In the act of redemption, God plays two roles simultaneously. God is both the one who judges sin and the one who offers the sacrifice to forgive sin. In the act of redemption, God plays two roles at once. God is both the redeemer and the price of redemption. He is the one who redeems And he is the only one who can pay the price that fixes this relationship. And so when we say something like he is the redeemer and the redemption price, we're looking directly at the cross of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, his very real and actual death upon the cross, buried in the tomb, and his actual physical, literal resurrection from the dead on the third day. This is the act, the spilling of the blood of God for our redemption to make us right, the gift that God gives us in redemption. Guys, it's important for us to make sure we hear these things, we believe these things. There is this perpetual temptation inside of the church to begin to turn these phenomenal and, quite frankly, divine and supernatural stories in Scripture to turn them into myth to turn them into things that are psychologically good for you if you need this, but we don't believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ literally happened. We're scientific advanced. uh, We're a scientific advanced civilization. We no longer need these stories. That temptation exists in the church perpetually. And as we make our way toward Easter, if you have your eyes open, you will read more stories in the leading media outlets in our culture, citing some of the leading theologians in the church world out there, telling us again that the cross and the resurrection are just mythology. But the second we begin to deny the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we deny and turn away God's gift of redemption. He says he redeemed us by his mythological death and resurrection. That's not what he says. He actually shed blood and redeemed us from our sins. So the faithful church hangs on to redemption and the gift that we're given by the cross and the empty tomb. So Paul says God redeemed us by his blood And we have now the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So redemption and now God forgives us our trespasses. My sins are forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. 
Scripture uses this really interesting and powerful imagery to help us understand what this means, to help us understand how this act works. And there's, there are symbols of it in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. As sacrificial animals would be brought to the priests, the priests would take their hands and they would place them on those animals. And in prayer and symbolically, they're placing the sin of that person upon this animal. The animal would be sacrificed. And the idea is, is that their sins have been put on that animal and now they're gone because of the death of that animal. But we will learn very quickly that animals can't forgive sins and change our hearts. So we have to do it over and over and over again until what sacrifice? Until which lamb shows up? You see, the the burden of our sins, Scripture says, is actually laid on Jesus Christ. All of the sin of all of humanity and broken creation lays upon Him. And in His death and resurrection, our sin is taken away. It's beautiful. It reminds me of uh, the, the classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. And in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, his name is Christian. At the beginning of the book, as he's leaving the city of destruction, we discover that he has this gigantic burden that he's carrying on his back. If you imagine this gigantic backpack that he carries with him throughout this entire journey, and he can't get rid of this burden, but he comes near the end of his journey and he sees this hill out before him. There's a gate around it, and inside the gate is a sign that says salvation. And he runs, he opens that gate, and he starts running uphill. And as he goes uphill, he sees a cross, and he sees a tomb. And as he makes his way to the cross, that burden that he has been carrying falls off of his back, rolls downhill, and disappears inside of the tomb. And Christian says this at that moment. He says, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. What is on my back is laid on him, and he takes it away. Here's how the prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to this language, and listen to what God does and what we receive. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He is crucified. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what he does, and this is what we receive. Isn't that amazing? Pastor Ryan spoke of that exchange. We sing of that sort of exchange. This is what he does to restore what he intended in his relationship with you. And this is what we receive. In a sermon on this passage of Scripture, the great English theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this, and it proves that that uh, memorizing phrases is not above, or excuse me, rhyming phrases is not above any pastor at all. I love this. He says, the treasure of God's grace is the measure of our forgiveness. His treasure is the measure of our forgiveness, and here's what that means. In other words, our treasure in Him is so great because my need for forgiveness is so great. 
Only a great and glorious and all-powerful and all-loving God could forgive this sinner, could forgive the sins of the world. That's how great this treasure is. And you see, this points to ways in which we deny the forgiveness of God or miss the forgiveness of God. One way in which we miss God's forgiveness is the way I think most of our culture treats this story now. And that is, I don't really need much. <laughs> I'm basically okay. There are some things around the edges I might need some work on. But by and large, I don't need forgiveness. And when we believe those sorts of things about ourselves, we miss what it is God is doing. We miss the gigantic realities of the gift that God gives when He forgives us. Another way in which we tend to miss God's forgiveness is that we believe that God is just not powerful to forgive a sinner like me. It's the other end of the spectrum. You have no clue who I am and what I have done. You have no clue what has happened to me. You have no clue what I'm trying to deal with and struggle with, and God just is not powerful enough. And so we miss the profound beauty and power and joy of this very simple phrase, all of my sins are forgiven. They've been placed on Jesus, and they have been carried away. With everything that is stacked inside of these, you know, first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, every time I go through it, there is one word that stops me every single time. Paul says, God lavished his grace on us. He, it's lavishing. He does not hinder. He does not hold back. He gives fully and freely of his gift, of his grace, of his redemption, of his forgiveness, of his brand new life. He doesn't give partially. He doesn't hold back until you get to a certain point. He lavishes his grace upon all of his children. God gives without lack. Okay, so we see this when Paul's trying to explain to us about who God is and what he does with his children. Guys, God gives grace according to his glory, according to his overwhelming, omnipotent, sovereign glory. That is the measure of the grace and the gift that he gives, and God is glorified in giving gifts. As God gives the gift of redemption and forgiveness to his children, I'm not glorified when that is given to me. He is glorified when that is given to me. It is about his lavishing grace and glory. This is how an infinite God pardons the sins of people who repent and turn to him. This is the fullness of the measure of his grace and all of his wisdom and insight, Paul says, he's giving this. Again, I go back to Charles Spurgeon in that sermon, and here's how Spurgeon describes that. He says, in fine, I'm going to put a point on it, to sum all up in one, the riches of the grace of God are infinite, beyond all limit, 
They are inexhaustible. They can never be drained. They are all sufficient. They are enough for every soul that e'er shall come to take of them. There shall be enough forever while the earth endures until the last vessel of mercy shall be brought home safely. The full measure, the lavishing of the infinite grace of God will be given to every single one of his children until all of us are finally home with him. He lavishes. His grace upon us. So God is giving these astounding gifts to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And why is He doing it? What is God accomplishing when He gives that to us? Paul says here in verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Jesus Christ. So Jesus sheds His blood on the cross. He redeems and He forgives sinners. He makes them His children, so that, Paul says, all things in heaven and on earth will be united, brought into Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of his will that he is making known in Christ to his people, through his people, that all things belong to him. And if we have eyes to see it, if we're willing to allow God to actually build the eyes in us to see this, we have an opportunity to actually see what God is up to, to know what God is doing to learn how to hear His voice when we read His Word, when we pray, when we worship together, to know what God is up to. Guys, this is honestly one of the frustrations I, I, I sort of run up against every now and then. As You know, I've been blessed. I've been brought up in the church and been in ministry for a long time one way or another. And every now and then you run into someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who can't see what God is doing. Especially they can't see what God is doing in their lives. Now, they'll tell you all day long they know what they're doing. They know what they've accomplished. They know what they've done inside of their lives. Or they're just angry and frustrated at God because He's not doing what they want Him to do. They don't yet have eyes to see what God is up to. But in His church, He is redeeming and He is forgiving. And He is changing lives. And He's revealing His work inside of us. Now, our role, as God is revealing His mystery, our role in God's mystery, I keep saying that God is fleshing this out inside of His church. Well, what, what does that mean? Our role in God's mystery seems to be twofold. First, the first thing that we do is this. It's very simple. Receive it. Take it. Open your hands, turn your eyes to God, and receive the grace that He is giving you. This is what he is lavishing upon everyone who will turn themselves to him. And our job is to receive it. This is all that Christ has done for us, and this is what we receive because of what Christ has done for us. Guys, a sinner who is saved by grace is a walking, living, breathing, speaking, breakfast-munching symbol of the glory of God. Every sinner saved by grace is a walking billboard it says, this is how great God is. Receive his grace. Turn your attention toward him. And I love this thought. Guys, it gives God just as much joy 
to grant salvation to a sinner as the sinner receives when they are saved. It gives God joy, and we receive the joy that he gives. Listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, truth is going to be a big deal in the book of Ephesians, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel is truth, he says. It is your salvation. And when you believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, you're given God's Holy Spirit, and it is his seal upon you. You are his. You're his son. You're his daughter. It's beautiful what God gives. So we receive God's grace, and the other part of it is so much of how the rest of the book unfolds. We simply live it out for all to see. We receive his grace, and then we learn how to live it. God has changed our lives, and now we should live like it. Lifestyles change. Here's how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, you are the light of the world. That's a stunning thought. I know a lot of you in this room. Would I say you're the light of the world, right? Would you say, Phil, you're the you know, we know each other. And yet, this is what Jesus says. This is what you do. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good, good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We receive what God gives. We learn to live it out in who gets all the glory. It's about God. It's about God. It's about God. So what is this mystery? The mystery of his will that he is revealing. And remember, mystery doesn't mean something that's fuzzy or confusing or we'll never really know. It means something that was once hidden that is now revealed. It means something that what we called, it is infinitely knowable. We know things about God, but then there's so much more we continue to live in. What is the mystery of his will? Paul says that according to his wisdom and his insight, God is doing all this because when the right moment comes, he's going to unite everything in Christ, everything in heaven and everything on earth. That is a universally inclusive set. That's big language. Everything in heaven and on earth. Is there any other place that you can think of that has things in them besides heaven and earth? No. All things are contained in heaven and earth. <laughs> All of that will be made sense of in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that thought a little bit later on, but what Paul does next is he reminds us of our adoption. He reminds us of part of the goal of that adoption in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We've become part of God's family, and now the Father's house is open to us. Having been predestined, this language is important to him in the beginning of this, in, of this book. It speaks of the initiative of God, the work of God. Even before we have the chance to respond to him, God is at work doing this. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God adopts us as his children and now his kingdom becomes available to us. 
this lavish grace upon us, this kingdom that he gives. This is how Jesus talks about it when he prays for the disciples. In the book of John, chapter 17, he has the disciples around him, but he's praying to God for them in their hearing. So Jesus wants us to hear this coming from him to the Father about what he's praying about for us. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. That's not what this is for. This is for my followers. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. They're our children, Father. And as you are at work inside of them, as these souls are saved and as lives are transformed, you are glorified, Jesus says. It's beautiful. And Paul goes on to say, speaking of this, in verse 12, he says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. There is always, already, as Paul speaks to the Ephesians, this is not long after the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. There is already this precedent that when I have received this grace, I'm going to speak this grace. I'm going to tell others about it. Paul says those of us who first received that first wave of the beginning of the church, early in the book of Acts and throughout that book, the church begins to spread Jerusalem and the surrounding region and so forth. Even through persecution, it is scattered. And Paul says, we receive this grace, first of all, to the praise and the glory of God. So this is what we do with it. We take what we have given and we speak it to you. And we implore with you and we work with you, asking that you would be reconciled to Jesus Christ so that you would receive what we have been given. So they've received and now they give. And the very existence of a church in Ephesus glorifies Christ. And these people are saved and their lives are different. They're changing things around them and now God is glorified because of that. It speaks to the, the work and the effort of Paul and the other missionaries and the elders in the church of Ephesus and what, the, what they did to spread the gospel. It speaks to their openness to receive the truth and for their lives then to be changed. It speaks to the power of God at work within them. Again, if you go back and you read the history of the church in Ephesus, Acts 19 and 20, you're going to read about miracles that happen, these incredible things that God is doing. There's this entire group of people who used to worship demonic forces, and it says that they got saved, so they bring all of their demonic paraphernalia into the city square, and they burn it. It's great. And then the text says that, and the word of the Lord and His power continued to increase greatly. So things are changing. And Paul is clear that his life is spent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else more important to Paul than that this church in Ephesus and that church in Colossae and this church in Philippi and Corinth get to know Jesus and grow in him. Paul's last words with the Ephesian elders, he's telling them, I know that when I leave this place, I'm going to face persecution and possibly death, so I'll never be back with you. 
And as they're weeping there on the shore, Paul is giving them his farewell address. And this is part of what the apostle says to those Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The Ephesian church received the truth. They accepted Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord of their lives. They endured persecution and hardship, and their lives are being lived to the glory of God. And now it's up to us to do that. The baton has been handed to us. This is our turn now to live these kinds of lives to the glory of God. But Paul says again, it's not up to our power or our strength or our wisdom or our resources. He says, when you receive the word of truth, the gospel, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The very presence of God, the third member of the Trinity, is now at work inside of you. Every believer in Jesus Christ is given the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the very presence of God himself. This is the very power for this brand new life that God gives to us in his family. And this is the seal. And Paul likes this language through his epistles. This is the seal that says... This believer, this child, this daughter, this son belongs to God, and no one can take them from me. So Paul says later on, what can any man do to me? I belong to God. This is the promise that no matter what happens, nothing can snatch you out of the hands of your heavenly Father. What can anyone do to me that takes me from God? The answer to that question is nothing. What else is more important to my life than this? Paul's answer is, I've spent my life on this. Nothing is more important. What else makes sense of life more than Jesus Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of God? To Paul, he says, nothing else makes more sense of this world than Jesus Christ. One of my favorite authors and writers, his name is Dallas Willard. He writes and speaks really well on spiritual formation and discipleship. And if that's how you get to know him, you may not know that he spent decades as a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. Not exactly a Christian university. But this guy did this for decades. And he'll say in some of his speeches, he said, you know, a lot of my students are surprised to find that their philosophy professor is a follower of Jesus Christ. So they would come and they'd ask me, why do you follow Jesus Christ? And he said, I learned to just simply answer that question with one other question. So I would respond, Who else would I follow? It's a brilliant answer. Because no matter how you answer that question, every one of those answers falls woefully short of Jesus Christ. There just isn't anyone else to follow. There just isn't anything else to give my life to except Christ. Look at what he has done. Look at what those gifts are accomplishing inside of our lives. Who else would I follow? Nothing makes sense of this world like Jesus Christ does. Nothing makes sense of our lives like Jesus Christ does. 
That brings us back to the middle of this section. That God is lavishing His grace upon us and all of His wisdom and all of His insights so that He would reveal the mystery of His will to us. That He's accomplishing in Jesus Christ that when the right time comes, He will unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. That sweeping statement, everything will be gathered together. Everything will be made sense of in Jesus Christ. Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. In this particular section, he's waxing eloquent about Jesus and who he is. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is an astounding thing about the Christian faith. Guys, the Christian faith refuses to be reduced to a simple idea that some people hold because it makes them feel better about something. It refuses to be fit inside of that box. Guys, the great story of God in the end is the great story of everything. Everything. It all wraps up in God. It's all created by God. It is all redeemed by God. It all makes sense inside of God. It doesn't make sense in the end without God in Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. The great story of everything, Paul says over and over, is the great story of God. This phrase to unite that Paul uses a few different times and he uses in this passage. It has this very straightforward meaning. It means to put the pieces together. God is putting all of the pieces together in Jesus Christ. We're going to learn throughout this book that without Jesus Christ, and we see this in the world around us, in our culture without Jesus Christ, what the culture wants to do is take those pieces and pull them apart. It wants to take those pieces and scatter them and try to make sense of a little piece of it over here and a little piece of it over here. None of that is going to work. The pieces of our lives, the pieces of all of creation are only put together in Jesus Christ. All of creation will eventually be made new by its creator. You see, guys, eternity with God in his perfect kingdom includes a new heaven and a new earth all of it being united in Jesus Christ. And our lives will be united and put together. Our relationships can be put together inside of Jesus Christ. And so much of the rest of the book of Ephesians is about exactly that. How if we pursue Christ first, things that were broken are united. Things that were torn apart are now can now be redeemed and knit back together because of Jesus Christ. So our lives are going to make sense in Him. So guys, the first step in making sense of my future or my calling, or what God wants to do in my life, the first step, get to know Jesus more. The first step in making sense of my marriage and my family and my relationships and my friendships, the first step, get to know Jesus more. The first step in making sense of what I do when I go to work, get to know Jesus more. The first step in making good sense of my political convictions, my philosophical leanings, 
my educational goals, the first step is get to know Jesus more. Because in Him, in Him, everything will be put together. You and I are given by the sovereign grace of God the deepest well to draw from. Why would we choose anything but Jesus Christ? Let's pray.